15 minutes is all you need a day. 15 minutes is all you need. And we've tested that out. And she said seven minutes of those 15 minutes should be spent observing your garden. So for those people who think they don't have much time, normally we say like it takes less time than the amount of time one normally spends on Facebook. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Emma and Mary Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer, a slow living apparel and lifestyle brand. We started this podcast as a means to further share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having constantly in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. Come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now let's dig in. Good morning, Emma. Hey, Mom. How are things on the farm? Oh, it's so beautiful here. I think June is really my favorite month, I think. It's uh, still cool, and the garden's going great. Um, Things are coming in. The mulberries are actually finishing up and the raspberries are coming in like crazy. I have to get out there every morning and pick a bowl full to keep ahead of it. Um, been making lots of raspberry kefir. was so delicious. And ice cream. Yeah. Are there not animals that try to get to the raspberries? I think the birds. Like birds. I think the birds must be eating some of them, but there's so many. It's I, There's enough to share. Um, in fact, did you plant those? Yeah, I, I did. Um, probably four, maybe five years ago. Raspberries really, uh, proliferate and will fill up an area easily. So they're a good kind of filler. Um, if you have a spot in your yard that gets sunshine, but you know, you kind of need something to fill it up. And then in the winter, you cut them back and you cut out the old canes, um, and, refresh it for the next season and we're just having a really good raspberry year they're so good oh yeah Yeah, I don't remember there being I remember that raspberry bush but I don't remember there being like so many we couldn't keep up so right I'll have to go out there and and see what you're talking about yeah we'll have to have some raspberry ice cream oh my gosh that sounds (laughs) so good Um, well, last night we had our fermentation basics Zoom class, and we made some slaw, and I thought it went really well. We had a really nice turnout, and it was really fun. Did you have fun? I did. I had so much fun, and I, I just love sharing this stuff. I want everybody to learn fermentation and, and be comfortable with it because it's just such an easy, healthy way to preserve garden food. Um, and right now we're in a time when people really want to be amping up their immune system and eating well. And this is just such a great way. So I feel like I'm kind of on a mission. And it's a really good way to use up vegetables. Like I find it hard. Like I'm a part of a CSA and some weeks it's just hard to use all the vegetables. Yeah. And the, the garden season's really ramping up now. Um, there's so many collards, kale, beets, and of course, 
cabbages, um, which we used a lot of yesterday. Um, and hopefully most of our listeners have access to, to local and seasonal food through their farmer's market or a CSA. But of course, the best way to eat seasonally and locally is to grow your own. Yeah, so gardens are obviously having a moment this year. Um, I remember it kind of was a, a little bit of a crisis in the spring when people were looking for seeds and places were sold out of seeds because everyone's, you know, doing their victory gardens, um, which is why we are so excited to talk to Nikki and Dave from Permaculture Gardens is their, the name of their business. Um, and they are on a mission to help spread the good news of growing your own food in your yard, no matter how much space or time or kids you have, <laughs> because they have what, 500 square feet. Um, they both work, or I guess, uh, Dave works. Vicki is a mother of six. Um, yeah. so if the two of them can do it, I feel like anybody can, um, so yeah, yeah, and it was so a really great conversation. It was, and we're gonna we're gonna let them tell their story right here because they can do it better than we can. Yeah, and there's a lot of things mentioned um, and throughout this episode. I've taken good notes, and they're in the show notes. And you definitely want to uh, check out all those links when you're done listening. Um, but we hope that this episode is as inspiring and enlightening to you as it was for us. Yeah. So here's. Nikki and Dave Shouter with Permaculture Gardens, um, and enjoy. We're speaking to Nikki and Dave um, from their home in Virginia, uh, right across the river from our farm here. We were just talking about how as the crow flies, we're really close to each other. It's really funny. So, um, Nikki and Dave, um, tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today with your permaculture garden business. Well, I've always wanted to do something about the environment, even as a child, coming from the third world, the Philippines. And I've seen and been with people living not only in the landfills, the trash landfills, but off of the landfills and have wanted to do something to bring about cleaner living, no pollution. And I didn't know back then when I was a child that permaculture was the answer, but I thought I wanted to do join the environmental clubs, um, enjoyed making my own paper. Inherently in the third world, you live more frugally and we don't waste paper as we do here in the schools. Um, as I've noticed, my own kids um, using paper, we use every part of the notebook back in the Philippines. We reuse notebooks for the next school year if they still have paper on them. You you oh don't gosh. like skip so much paper and then write smack in the middle of your <laughs> your notebook, yeah. So um, my first like, I guess environmental project was just handmade paper and I and I teach the kids to do that today too and um joining an eco hiking club but I never really gardened uh David has been a gardener ever since he's I was a, my mom got me involved in uh there's like a junior gardeners club so she's always did flowers uh but I would I would help her so I I at least knew how to grow 
uh, plants and I was a little more familiar with them. Where are you from, Day? My parents moved from South Africa because of apartheid. I was born in England. My my father is white and my mother is colored, so they couldn't get married in uh, South Africa at the time because of the, the the laws there. So they had to leave the country in order to, to be together. So I was born in England, grew up there for uh, almost nine years before moving to Pittsburgh. So I eventually found my way down to Northern Virginia after college. Wow, you guys have an awesome story. Yes. Yeah, we're pretty good. <laughs> we're <laughs> yeah. That's, so how did you end up in, um, sorry to get off the, the business for a second, we'll get back to it, but how did you both end up in Virginia? So my parents, my, my father's sister put in a request to um, a petition for um, our family to migrate to the U.S. back in the 70s, I think. And it took 20 years before the petition was accepted. Oh my. So in the 90s, in the Philippines, everybody who can, I, I would say, like, at least this is my perception, there are very few people who, um, if given the chance, would stay home due to the poverty there. And so in the 90s, um, when was it accepted in the 90s? Yep, we were, the petition was accepted, but I didn't move here until after I graduated from college, which was in the early 2000s. And uh, when we migrated, my parents were here in, in Maryland, actually in Columbia, Maryland. So we, we met uh, swing dancing at the Kennedy Center in, in Washington, DC, uh, just mm -hmm. randomly. Because in swing dancing, there's a lot of, you rotate, partners uh it's just part of the culture so they had a, like a live big band and we just ran into each other and that's how we uh, <laughs> met each other yeah i was working in dc for a nonprofit to help um kids at risk children middle schoolers and high school at risk children in the city with leadership and character formation and academic skills so I had a program, a nonprofit program that I was um, directing, and I met Dave in, um, in the Kennedy Center. That's awesome. That's so fun. And you guys have kids. Yep. We have six kids. <gasps> Whoa! The oldest uh, one is 13, and we have twins. They're the youngest. They're three and a half now. So oh, wow. There's never an idle moment in our house. Okay, so back to the business. How did you? You have six kids. Like, what? Tell us how. What? Tell us everything. <laughs> I'm amazed. Okay, so the kids were actually what got us into gardening because, as I continued to kill plants right into our marriage, um, <laughs> our first child was born in 2006, Zoe, and she had allergies so severe. She was allergic to chicken, eggs, tree nuts peanuts, milk, and wheat. That's very stressful too because um, initially she did. She was 18 pounds at six months and then she was that same weight for the next year. Oh. And they didn't know what was going on for a long time. They just called it failure to thrive. So in the end, it was just food allergies, but there's so many misdiagnosed 
things and checking and tests and whatever. And then it just ended up being food that was the problem. Yeah. And, and Dave was also suffering from gut issues, right, Dave? Yeah, I used to have a lot of issues where uh, I'd be pretty susceptible to food poisoning, uh, maybe like once or twice a year, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so at this point in time, my maternity diet consisted of Kentucky Fried Chicken, a lot of fast foods, instant meals. But when our daughter was diagnosed with that, and then our second child was also diagnosed with allergies at six months, um, and he was allergic to fish, he turned blue in the face, and we had to call the EMTs. So this led us to really question, why do these kids have allergies? Why is there a rise in allergies? in America, and we don't remember having that many allergies as kids ourselves, where we are coming from. So we thought it might be something inherently in the food system, something in the conventional food system here in America was just not right. So we decided to go organic. So it was expensive, but we we thought, okay, that, that as long as it resolved the immediate food issues that we were having, it was worth it. But then Maybe two or three years after that, we started, uh, we discovered permaculture and uh, I had been starting to garden again in our backyard and not having uh, very much success. And I just kind of randomly stumbled upon permaculture. Uh, I think it was like a reality show in England where somebody was living, kind of rehabbed a farm, was living off the, the land and that one thing led to another. We just, we really got into permaculture, um, and then we just transformed our whole yard into a food forest. So, what what I want the listeners to know is that your food forest is actually the small yard in in your at your townhouse. Is that correct? In Northern Virginia, you live you live. Yeah, it is. You live in suburbia in a, uh, a small lot, and you produce how many how many pounds of food a year? So we also have the beds at my work, but if you include the, it was probably about a thousand square feet of growing space, including access, and so maybe half of that is just paths and things like that. So maybe five hundred square feet of actual growing space, and we. Uh, now probably up to about around 500 pounds of produce a year. Oh my gosh. This is so important. This is what I want people to hear because um, they think, you know, they don't have the space or the time or, you know, they have to work, they have kids and all of these things that um, you guys are such an example. I mean, you have six kids, uh, you know, Dave, you, you go off to this job. Do you have a, a, a day job, Nikki, or is it, Besides, no, care six kids. That's enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you're a full time mom plus, and um, and this business. The bit, this you have this wonderful business, business that we'll get into. Yeah, it's amazing. And here, you're you're doing this. I just I love this so much. I want to shine a light on on what you all are doing and um, tell everybody about it, which is the reason for this episode. <laughs> it's it's so great. So um. I, I want, though, to back up just a little bit. Let's talk about permaculture. Um, we say it a lot in our 
comings and goings here at Lady Farmer, but a lot of people don't know what that is. So, and it, it's, it's also something that takes on different meaning for different people. So let's just talk about it and um, what does it mean to you and how do you explain it to others? And uh, how do you see permaculture working in your life in ways that extend beyond growing food, which is an interesting idea. Conceptually, when permaculture was first um, created by David Holmgren and his thesis advisor, Bill Mollison, he they thought of the word to coin something that was a permanent agriculture. And eventually, when they wrote the book, um, when the book, the Permaculture Design Manual was written, it has this last chapter on community or like society or something of that sort that's a little bit that goes beyond, as you said, Mary, just the garden, because one may initially think that permaculture is just a set of methods for growing food, but it's so holistic and all, you know, encompassing a lot of other aspects of food growing that one would normally not think about. And for us, this design system is really looking at the functional relationships that occur naturally in your garden, in your home, in your community, and um, best how can you best tweak that to benefit yourself so that uh, you get a permanent system for persistent human existence, as Bill Mollison summed it up. So uh, another aspect I wanted to highlight was it's cyclical, much like your company is also cyclical. And in a way, it's more than cyclical. It's spiral because we, every year, as the seasons go on and as the years go on, you're always looking to improve the efficiencies of your garden. You're saying, how much more can we grow this year? What other yields can we have? How can we make this path even more productive? And how can we use less? The the biggest partner in uh, permaculture is the is the actual nature because it's one of the amazing things once you start learning uh, this stuff. I I remember when I was in uh, college and they'd be talking about oh you can take a course in soil science and I would think that's the most boring thing ever, but now I think it's the most interesting thing ever because when you when you discover these functional relationships that already exist in uh, a properly eco uh, a uh, ecology that's balanced then you see that the fungi works with the plants that works with the microbe uh, organisms in the soil and there's this amazing um, synergistic uh, relationships that go on and as, as what you're you're basically doing is you're just partnering up with nature so that you get some benefit out of it as well yeah and and going back to the spiral concept that I have I like thinking about it in a spiral, which is a naturally occurring pattern, because um, you can take, for instance, analogies like in nature you have um, the Fibonacci sequence, and every and or which you see in a sunflower. You have the calendar. You have the octaves in a in a scale, for instance. And the first octave, the first note, your first C, um, is similar to that last that eighth note right the eighth c higher c but it's going up it's going higher and i always have that image um of permaculture when i i at least call it to mind and you're right about it meaning so many things to different people but that's so beautiful 
do you are you a musician nikki do you have uh do you play music I love music. Um, I sing, but my daughter plays the violin. She's the concert master in the Loudoun Symphony Youth Orchestra right now <laughs> during this coronavirus. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the Loudoun Symphony like, younger concert, younger kids because she's she's thirteen. But she um, loves music, and I love listening to her. And I think it's it's one of our family things that we share. Well, I love that analogy you made with the um, the musical octave scale. Uh, and how it how it reflects the same spiral that you see in nature, and how you it's the same note, but it's it's at a different level. So you guys talk specifically, and you live specifically. We've already mentioned um, permaculture and gardening in suburbia, and you mentioned to me earlier that you focus on gardening permaculture in urban and suburban areas and how you can do it really anywhere. So um, can you guys speak to that a little and some of the challenges that you might come up against? Yeah. So a, a lot of the permaculture is working on large scale agricultural systems. So we we were in, in our environment, we had to deal with a small uh, scale. So we, we had to adapt the things that worked. So you, you worry less about things like um, landscape, because there isn't much, you might worry, okay, you have a slope and you, you might be able to capture some of the water on that slope, but you, that's a big thing normally like key line systems and permaculture. So we, we kind of integrated, we took things here and there to create our own kind of mishmash of what worked in a suburban setting uh, on a small scale. So a lot of the things that we also work with are uh, from uh, John Jevons started a, uh, inst what's the name of his? Uh, Ecology Action in Willits, California. So he's very big on uh, growing things from seed and then transplanting them out. So there's a, there's a number of th these things that we integrated. So permaculture deals specifically with trying to take advantage of the, the, the full space, the three-dimensional space in your garden and the seasons and worrying about the energy that moves through your your garden. So we grow a lot of perennials. We have a lot of fruit trees, dwarf fruit trees that are in small space, but then right under the, the fruit trees, we grow uh, berries and things like that. So you can grow in a three-dimensional uh, space to, to maximize what you're getting in that in that small area. And then we also do a lot of seasonal rotation so we also grow uh, three seasons out of the year. So when we're growing annuals, then we'll rotate uh, after a season. And a lot of people talk about ro rotating their beds from year to year, but we do that within a single year. We will have three full crops of annual annuals, and then we use something called low tunnels to protect them during the winter. Wow. It's amazing to hear you talk about this and then just keep, I keep reminding myself like, that you said, what, 500 square feet? <laughs> so you're doing all of this in that tiny space. It's really inspiring. Yes, and I, I was yeah. noticing on uh, um, the picture on your website of your, you and your kids standing in front of your um, your front yard garden, I guess. And uh, it really does not match the picture that most people have in their minds of a, a garden where someone would grow so many hundreds of pounds 
of food a year where we think of the, the, the long straight rows and lots of room in between. It's everything's like, like really close together and there's a ton of foliage and greenery and talk about that. Like the conventional idea of, um, you know, planting in rows and you, you have to, there can't be anything else around the plants. And so talk about that concept a little bit, because when, when you're in a super limited space like that, every plant can't have three feet of its own, you know, so. That's where biointensive gardening really helps us. As Dave mentioned, John Jevons is a pioneer of, of biointensive gardening in America. And he's taught us how you can space vegetables much closer than the seed packet will tell you to, because that seed packet's thinking you're growing in a large agricultural landscape, not in a small garden. But Dave <laughs> was just talking to me this morning about not thinning the carrots because, what was it, Dave? Uh, so we, we run a lot of experiments too, probably like six or seven like crazy ideas that we try every year. So uh, Nikki's just talking about, I. so normally carrots turn woody during the summer. If you let them grow, they kind of get unedible. Where they'll grow, they'll survive because they're biennials, but they won't taste good during the summer. So what I thought, I would scattered a bunch of seed into a, a bed at my work, and it's just a very dense patch of carrots. Normally you thin those out, but I thought uh, because they're so close together, they might actually protect themselves and retain moisture oh. if, they, if you don't thin them during the summer. So, this is not proven yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but we, we are always constantly experimenting and we are always making polycultures, like lots of different things in one bed and noticing where we can think of niches to fill in terms of physical space, niches to fill in terms of uh, time, and niches to fill in terms of function in a garden. Also, I, I think a lot of people don't, they don't, not just growing in rows, but they also don't grow vertically enough. Yeah. Because there's a lot of, you, if you think about the light that a plant needs in order to thrive, um, just, through evolution they've they've developed this sense like they're going to reach towards the light so there's a lot of plants that vine that you can grow up trellises and then you can grow so in, in permaculture one of the one of the ideas in a food forest is that you ha you can have uh, seven or more layers in a food forest so you have like a canopy tree that's very tall and then you have like a sub canopy tree that's just used to getting the light that filters through that tall tree so it doesn't need that full sun and then you have herbaceous uh, plants and berries that grow beneath that tree. And then you have all these different layers. You have vining crops that, that climb up that tree to get their light. And then you have things that grow on the ground that are root crops. So you can grow a lot of things in the same space as long as you're taking advantage of that three-dimensional aspect of it and growing more vertically. I was going to say that the conventional garden is you just think of that like so one-dimensional, like one plant per space, and it goes up, you know, 18 inches or whatever the plant goes and it has a, a, a vegetable or a fruit on it and then that's it but what you're describing is like as you three-dimensional where you just you use the different um the, the whole spatial relationship of the garden is way more complex than just that one plant so it's super fascinating like a good example i i think it's probably a lot of people say well that sounds good in theory but just to i'll just grab one uh, 
simple example from our backyard is that we have a fence that goes around the outside of our, our garden. Uh, we have a, a pear tree that we've espaliered, like a dwarf pear tree. Oh, espaliered is where you train the, the branch of the, of the tree so that they grow along the fence, so they're not taking up much space. So you just prune everything back so that they're growing. You use guide wires. So it's it's literally almost glued to the fence, so it's not really taking up any space at all. Then we have strawberries as a ground cover around that. And then uh, finally, I'm growing cucumbers, which is a vining uh, crop. I'm growing Japanese climbing cucumbers, which will find their way up the fence and up the, the pear tree. So just in that space, there's three different crops that were grown that will yield. Yeah, that's just looking at the physical space. When you think about, well, what does this pear tree need in terms of nutrition? What plant can help it grow even more? We're talking about this pear tree that's never given us fruit. Um, but, but a comfrey, so comfrey is close to it. And comfrey in permaculture is called a dynamic accumulator because it mines the soil for nutrients, brings them up to the upper layers of where they're more accessible to the plants around it, especially when their leaves are chopped and dropped into the soil and then they create biomass. We grow pollinator plants around it, stinging nettle, stinging nettle beside all our tomatoes and anise hyssop. Um, so many things right now, oregano, um, lots of herbs and um, what else? So it's it's interesting how we we got into all of this. We I mean it, we didn't just immediately get all of this. I, we started off we loved permaculture and got involved in it. And then we uh, our kids were at the local elementary school had a space a courtyard that wasn't being used. So before we got to where we are now with our business, we did a we mm -hmm. ran a, a a school outdoor gardening program. But then this thing kind of sucks you in. So we did that for a couple of years and then we got sucked in even more and we wanted to kind of reach out and, and help other people who were uh, doing that, that kind of thing in the, in the suburbs. Speaking of being sucked in, it can sound super intimidating to the person who is like, yeah, I'm, I got, the, yeah, I'm okay. I'm with the idea, I'm into it. But then you start talking about like all the different kind of moving parts and it's like, ah, where do I even start? So <laughs> Can you backtrack a little bit and kind of maybe if it was at that school garden or maybe describe what it was like to go from the let's do a school garden to like kind of where you are now and then how you talk to people who are just starting out? Because I know that's part of your business. You sort of unintimidated for people. We always try to encourage people who have little or no room to grow or who have little experience to just start from the seed, like observe the seed and watch that magic happen. So our first, the first course that we ask them to try is start with sprouting or we have a challenge and we have people, one of our challenges that we run once a year during, during the winter months even is plant your pantry. And it's literally mm. just to find stuff from your pantry, a garlic clove, um, scallions, celery, <laughs> mung beans in your pantry and just to sprout them and start them and that gives people the confidence and just that witnessing of life come from what little you did that kind of whets the appetite and makes people more confident and to try more things 
to try in pots and then from pots to grow in ground. That is such a good idea. And the first thing that came to my head was um, my favorite thing in my pantry is my crushed red peppers. <laughs> I just like I put them on everything. And I've never thought like, oh, I could probably just like put red, some red peppers in a pot and like dry them or I don't even know. I've like never yeah. thought about that. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, go for it. There's so many things in like dill seed and caraway seeds. And even uh, if you have some old old ginger that's starting to sprout. You can just put it in the pot, and uh, we've grown ginger on our on our deck. Oh. So yeah, it's it's amazing the number of things that we use in our houses that have some kind of plant based origin that we just take for granted that we haven't even thought like, oh, I could just grow this. Oh, that is, I love that. I I I want to ask though, some of those things like. For instance, like say potatoes or onions, unless they're organically grown, aren't some of them um, grown not to propagate? Is that true? Yes. In fact, we've had some people try to grow them in our plant your pantry challenge and find that it never their potato never grew, and that's when you know that you've got your potato from a bad source. That's when you know it's GMO, right? Yes. Yeah, you need to. I guess uh, that's another reason to make sure you're buying organic. Um, it, it, if you want to, if you want to grow your own things from things you've bought at the store, then they is organic necessarily going to propagate, or does it need to be something from a farmer you know? Or what are these things that don't propagate? So, I mean, as long as the thing hasn't aged uh, too much. I think as long as you're buying organic, there's a, there's a probably a good chance that the thing will sprout. Yeah. So, for example, like sweet potatoes, in order to store them correctly, they need to be cured. So it's a little diff, a little harder to start those from whatever you get from the store than just a regular potato. So we've we found things that are very easy to start, like garlic, uh, celery, the base of the celery. If you just cut the basil plate off the the celery, you can regrow that. So that we found that to be very easy to regrow. So there's some things that are kind of like great bang for your buck in terms of uh, yeah. planting from your pantry. And you have this on your website, a plant your pantry guide, or that's this is great stuff. Not yet. We just we release it every every January, but uh -huh. I'm we're in the process of updating our website, so we have to put our free challenges up there as well. Yeah. And we'll, we'll be linking to all of these things in the, and all of the sources and things that you've mentioned so far in the show notes. So if you're listening, have no fear, just check the show notes and all the links should be there. Um, so Nikki and Dave, do your children help with the garden situation? Yeah. So right now we have every year, we have a harvest competition for all of the four olders. And each of them are given a family. So a family would be cucurbit family. Leafy greens is a family. There's, there's maybe like 12 choices because what, what we do just to keep ourselves accountable is we, we weigh the harvest that we collect. So we thought uh, just to get the, so we dragged the, initially when we got into this, we dragged the kids everywhere with us and they kind of roll their eyes, but 
we were hoping that they would they would kind of get into this through osmosis just because they're exposed to it so much. And now what we do is just to make it a little more fun, we have this competition where they get to pick a category. Like I'm going to be in charge of the cucumbers this year. And then they weigh all the cucumbers and keep track of that value them, themselves. And then if at the end, they we tabulate all of this in a spreadsheet. And at the end of the, the year, whoever wins gets to get a big prize. Oh, wow. But yeah, the, we, we bring the garden to their schools as well. So we're they go to a local Title I school, which of course now is is closed. But during the, during the school year, we're in the schools. For the first year of us doing this, we were doing this every, every week. We were in the schools with a garden club after school program. And then um, after the twins, it became just like I would have relationships with certain teachers and they would call me in for garden time, maybe once a month, twice a month, especially for the um, the special education kids. That was so much fun working with them because they really love the outdoors and and some of them don't love the outdoors, but they want they they need to experience it. Um, and and the children come to us and they recognize us even in the the community that we're in. You know, passing by our house. Uh, then that's how our our children's program got started was because one of the students was passing by the house so often and and wondering about all the plants that we decided we're all right we're going to start this in the school we we got a grant um, through Whole Foods and slowly um, teachers became more and more involved in it and wanted to use us or the garden as a resource for their own teaching which is what we really envisioned in in the first place in the beginning but 9 a.m every day is outdoor time for the kids the garden the garden work is for breaks we put desks outside the kids read in the hammocks they gather gummy berries strawberries and some of their chores are just <laughs> there's one of them now some of their chores are to um squash bugs <laughs> the cucumber beetles and one, one of our sons was actually given that, asked by the neighbor to do that for her garden and paid him 10 cents per bug. Oh. <laughs> do you guys have any more room in your family? Do you want another uh, child, an adult child? I'm almost 30. We're, I'll help squash Oh bugs. my gosh, we'd that love so fun. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, oh. turn, turning the compost too is one of his, of uh, our son's Ethan's chores and just yesterday so the the three the three youngers the twins three and a half and Simon who's six I asked them to dig a pond to give them work right dig a pond right under where the the hose of the washing machine comes out of the house oh so they said go dig a pond so they they dig this pond and we try to flatten it um to make sure that it's like we don't have a pond liner or anything just kind of flattening it with our own stomping of the feet and yesterday they took the rain barrel water and they just went from the rain barrel to the pond the rain barrel to the pond because it wasn't full from the water from the laundry um and they filled it up and then all of a sudden these dragonflies come like in one day dragonflies oh. come like right around the pond so dave is saying that the mosquitoes are gonna come too but we're trying to build a diversity even in the landscape, in the small landscape that we have. So the water from the rain spouts, the gutters go down to a rain barrel. And then now we have this little mini pond. 
feature. Can you make a pond that way? I mean, do, do you have to have a pond liner? I mean, I, I want to, I have a little pond in my garden, but I'm, I'm thinking about a bigger one, but can you do that without a liner? So I, I looked on permies.com. Oh, okay. And that's cool. I think, yes, I think um, they have, I looked at a video really quickly, but I didn't do it before watching this. I did it a few months ago where I was like, can I really make, because I had that same question that you had, like, I don't want to buy a plastic pond liner. I just want to see if I can do it without having to buy anything. And they showed people just stomping their feet, like barefooted, making a mud thing, mud wall out of the bottom of the, of the pond. And that's how they, they created their little pond things. Oh my goodness. And you're, Twin three and a half year olds and a six year old did this. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and they had Definitely. fun doing it. And my kids are all grown up now. But when they were in elementary school, I too was green school mom, and I had and I ran the environmental <laughs> program over there. And we made paper. That was one of the things we did. Um, so, and you, you started out saying how you made paper in the school, and the, the children just loved that, and they were fascinated by it. And I too was like just kind of. Um, you know, unhappy about the way paper was just like, they just, paper was just considered like air, you know, just no regard at all. Especially in the nineties. I mean, every day we are bringing home things for them to sign. Like, I don't know if you guys like remember that or were part of that, but I mean, every, I was bringing home things for my mom to sign (laughs) all the time. I don't know if they still do that. Stacks and stacks of paper. And then, and they, they would have these recycling bins in each classroom, you know, these big blue bins and, and they would be just full of like blank paper and it just drove me crazy. So we, we started teaching the kids uh, you know, how paper was made and actually doing it. And they really, really loved it. And um, yeah, we had a garden and we had different programs in the different grades. And um, one of the funny stories I like to tell is we did vermiculture with the fourth graders. Mm-hmm. And so we, we got the big bins and punched holes in them and did the worms and the crumbs and all that. And they grew worms in their classroom and um, the teachers were a little wary of this and they weren't sure how they felt about, you know, that. And I said, oh, it's fine, fine. It's great. And the kids can put their lunch leftovers in it. And the worms will eat it. And so one day somebody in one of the classrooms actually overwatered the worm bin. And so you know what happened? The next morning they go to school and all the worms are like all over the room because they had come out of the <laughs> of the worm bin. So I, I had to talk them down from that, but <laughs> um, oh a short-lived vermiculture phase. But yeah, what a story! Impressive. Yeah, we, yes, we we too um, introduced worms, but we keep them outdoors in the school, and they're probably fried by now. But <laughs> we have back up, we have back up um, worms here, and one of the teachers, because we we live streamed gardening again for my kindergartner nurse class this coronavirus period and we were live streaming to their classmates um, in the garden giving them a tour and showing them the worms and the teachers hopped on the call and so they suddenly started getting requests for worms so i i just gave a teacher a worm who gave another teacher a worm who was asking me for more worms because more teachers want worms so it's funny how i think there's a growing trend definitely mary that you'll see more and more teachers are getting excited about this kind of stuff. Oh, I, I hope so. And uh, I, I, I want to commend all the teachers back in, in those years in the 90s that were just all, you know, just all about it. And we're, we're really welcoming, 
that the the experiences for the kids and that was back in the day when <clears throat> school gardens was a f- fairly new concept but they really embraced mm-hmm. it they did for the most part and um and I had fun so much fun with the kids and I remember we did um we did a a, a no trash lunch one time where the whole school the kid and this was this wasn't 97 or 8 or something all the kids brought to school their lunch that had nothing to throw away. And we spent like weeks like talking about it. Like what, what can you do instead of plastic? And it was amazing. It was, um, it was, it was a real eye opener to people. So that might be something you want to do in your school when, when they go back. I love that idea. Oh my goodness. I love that idea. And I, and I am so impressed by you that you're able to, to manage pulling that big project off because I can imagine that just logistics of getting that message out there to all the parents is is hard so so it was like a lot of a lot of notes you know a lot of notes home (laughs) (laughs) but a lot of you know memos about the trash-free lunch so it probably you know I don't know how much we uh, waste we actually saved but it was the point it was the exercise of walking through it you know Um, and people did it people participated and so, That's well, awesome. I want to also know how uh, you have six kids and they've been home for since March. And have you, uh, it sounds like you just sort of you homeschool naturally. Um, it's, it probably was fairly seamless for you. But do you want to talk about that a little bit about suddenly having your, um, I guess that would be five kids, no, four, because the, the three and a half year olds probably aren't in school yet, but so. Four additional youngsters yeah. in your house daily. We definitely needed a schedule. And um, I mean, going back to the children in the garden, I think I always try to think like the challenge is to allow myself to be led by the child's sense of wonder. And I think I should always yeah. like to be working with children in the garden, in the home, to help me stop and notice the minute the close to the ground, the noises. And you, Mary, working with your daughter, it's like I always want to have that that tie to that young set of eyes and young set of experiences so that I am always renewed and always like always in that sense of awe. So having them at home has been a challenge. We set up a schedule as soon as possible. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, we. you can imagine that over the years we've tried a lot of different systems to to encourage the kids to participate uh, uh be part of the the chores and things that need to to get done around the house so um we, we've kind of got to the point where they're familiar with all of that so it, i think the hardest thing is just getting them in this okay there's this new paradigm where we can't do all the things that we we enjoyed doing before but because we have a garden and things like this, you can still enjoy time outside. And and now the schedule again has changed. I was on a spiritual retreat two weeks ago, and one of the lights of my retreat was that I should have this this schedule <laughs> tied up uh, um, more clear for the summer. And I looked at a week. A week has 168 hours. 49 of those say I spend seven hours sleeping every day. Um, 49 of those are sleep. And then 
if I wanted to work my business and have, you know, give the kids and Dave and the home life the necessary time, then I had to look how, you know, I couldn't put 40 hours there for the business. And I could only put 20 in the end. I had like mapped out all the things like food initially took 35 hours on my chart, but I had to like find a way to make that 20 hours. That meant eating, washing dishes, um, preparing the meals, cleaning up the kitchen. And I, I, I studied it so that it could go down to like 20 hours with the help of my children with Dave is my big helper. He's such, he taught me how to cook by the way. So he does the groceries and then um, I do the meal plan and he cooks most of the breakfast. So now it's down to 20 hours and so on and so forth. Like looking at each, each um, activity and trying to see how we can optimize that time, delegate that time to the kids to incorporate, you know, their help and their sense of responsibility. Yeah. So it's going to be just week one. So I have nothing much to report yet, except I was able to batch cook meals. Nikki does a great job cooking, so she, she's uh, being humble about her, her cooking skills. So. Yeah, incorporate a lot of the garden in it in the cooking, of course. I'm 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 so glad you brought that up about the um the time in the meal prep because uh one of the things I wanted to ask you was what do you say to people when they go well you know we're too busy to eat healthy or eat better, um, you know, that takes too much money, that takes too much time, I don't have time to grow my food, um, and it's less convenient, so I think, especially before COVID, I think it's beginning to shift now, but um, people use their busyness uh, as an excuse not to transition into better food, and y'all had to do it for health reasons, or very uh, chronic health reasons that were affecting your life. Um, so can you speak to that? Like how you grow your own food and you cook healthy food and you don't, you don't defer to um, convenience things or fast food. And here you're running a business and six kids and Dave has a job and all this. So how do you respond to people? What do you tell other people? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's really show don't tell. That's why showing them yeah. the meals on, you know, and, it takes you less time to grow your food than to walk down to the supermarket to buy it, Bill Mollison says, and, and he's right. Yeah, I mean, one of the things is as you grow the food, you try to integrate it into your, your menu to make it simple. So, for example, the spring is great because we get so much lettuce that you can easily create a, yeah. a salad in like 10 minutes or something. And it's, it's the freshest salad you've ever had because you just harvested the lettuce like 10 minutes ago so it's really simple uh and it you saved all that time you didn't have to go buy the produce and then the nutrition of a lot of these things goes down through storage i think at one point nikki dug up some fact that if you store spinach in your fridge for a week it basically loses like 80 or 90 percent of all its nutrition so um just in terms of your health and, the, and then you don't have to go to the doctor. We hardly ever go to the doctor now. Amy Strauss of Suburban Farm. That's, this is Suburban Micro Farm. Amy, our friend, who's another permaculture author, uh, practitioner, she's the author of The Suburban Micro Farm. She says 15 minutes is all you need a day. 15 minutes is all you need. And we've tested that out. And she said seven minutes of those 15 minutes should be spent observing your garden. 
So for those people who think they don't have much time, normally we say like it takes less time than the amount of time one normally spends on Facebook. We, we also don't have grass. So if you think about all that time that you spend taking care of a weed that does nothing for you at all, and all the money on fertilizers and pesticide and whatever, and you just, all that time and effort that you use maintaining the lawn and you just use it to grow some things, then, you know, that, that time is better spent. Another of uh, John Jevons, who we mentioned earlier, he says, according to one of the books that he dug up, it's 3.62 minutes a day is all one needs. Wow. 3.62 minutes. So um, I think it's very doable and it's not even every day that you need to be out there. But you, if you need to start from somewhere, starting from sprouts, I think, is the way to go. And then also permaculture is sometimes called lazy gardening. So that mm -hmm. refers to you, you're making choices in what you're growing, like growing more perennial type things that will naturally come back year after year. And then you don't have to take care of them. They, they just kind of take care of themselves. So you're, you're trying to maximize what you get out of your garden for the least amount of effort. Everything you just said is completely blowing my mind because um, that is my number one excuse. I live in the city. I am in an apartment. Uh, my mom is the one that lives on the farm. And I spend a lot of time out there. And I, I did live there with, the, with my parents for a few years. But now that I'm in the city, I, you know, I have my CSA subscription and um, I do a buying club for my locally sourced meat. And I, and I feel like I do a pretty good job sourcing, but um, even just the like back deck, um, not a deck, I don't even have a deck, but like a railing, <laughs> even just my like railing herb garden, um, I have yet to get set up because it's honestly, even for me, it's a little intimidating. I don't know why I said even for me. I'm not like a master gardener, but <laughs> um, it's intimidating to me. And my favorite thing to tell myself is that I don't have time or I'm or I'm just impatient. And we t actually talk about this a lot at Lady Farmer about how we all have the same amount of time and slow living is all about really just using your time differently and, and appreciating that. Um, yeah, that we all have the same amount of time as we've always had. We just have a lot more stuff to fill it with these days. So I think what you guys are talking about is simply reallocating your time and your energy. And in doing so, you actually probably end up saving time and a ton of money. I mean, I don't know. Have you guys actually like run financial numbers um, to compare like how much you spend at the grocery store versus growing your own food? I'd be interested in that too. Yeah, I mean, we we just look at our like at a gross level of, of how much we save on the grocery budget, and and that's definitely in the thousands of dollars each year. But it of course that doesn't take into account all the other costs that we save, like all the the money that we used to spend on health issues, and uh, the fact that we're not as stressed out because when we want to Instead of paying for a chiropractor or something, they just go out in the garden and pick some berries. And it's, <laughs> it has wow. the same kind of euphoric feeling that you yeah. get out of it. The weeding gets less and less. And so we have a, a little video of how we're just weeding the weeds around the strawberries, which are our main ground cover. So if you're going to have a weed, have a weed that you're going to have, you can harvest from thyme. Creeping thyme is a good ground cover. 
and strawberries are a good ground cover. So as we weed stuff from around the strawberries, we're also thinking, what else can I put in its place so that it doesn't come back and the stuff that I do want stays there? So chives, you can put in, plug it in while you're weeding the strawberry. You know, the strawberry. So always have this uh, second thing, you know, I'm going to take out this weed, but the ground wants to be covered. It doesn't like being bare. That's what nature is telling us. So what can I put in um, that will keep it covered? Yeah, weeds are almost like uh, nature's built-in remediation uh, service because they realize that there's bare uh, soil that's going to turn into dirt. So they just naturally kind of fill that niche. So if, if you're growing stuff and it's literally covering everything, then there's no room for the weeds. The, the weeds will naturally uh, start to go down as well because you have stuff, other stuff that's growing in the, in the place of it. Besides time, money, and space, which I feel like are the main, um, the main inhibitors that people talk about when they talk about growing their own food, is there anything else that we that we haven't covered? Like I feel like you guys have such a great sort of counter um, alternative for each each inhibitor category that <laughs> people might say, "Oh, I can't do that because oh, kids." I have kids. Well, you guys have six kids, so is there anything else? Yeah. What we what we get a lot of is there. I mean, aside from there's a lot of people who say, "Oh, the deer eat everything." So uh, that's a whole another topic. But um, we we also get a lot of people who are kind of scared because they don't have that experience. It's not maybe 150 years ago everybody knew how to grow stuff, but now most people don't know how to grow anything. So there's of course, they're uncomfortable with their confidence in growing things. So we get a lot of, of that as an objection, like, I, I have a black thumb, I'm going to kill everything I grow. So that the, we, we start with that sprouting because that gives you some kind of positive feedback in like a week or two. And it's, it's this gradual process because you have to build up the psyche. It, they've kind of had, had this... Uh, negative psyche in place so you have to kind of encourage them and build that confidence but once they the thing is once you start getting harvests and things like that then as soon as that cycle starts then the we found people are are hooked yeah like anything else it's just a matter of jumping in right like you just gotta jump in then you learn how to swim except the great thing with growing your own food is that you you don't have to worry about <laughs> nothing's actually bad is going to happen. <laughs> There's so many things we could talk about. Um, the, the whole area of um, that you experience so personally, how the industrialized foods are actually um, um, not only like unhealthy, but like are like bad for you and make you sick. Are you familiar with the the Robin O'Brien book, The Unhealthy Secret? And and she goes through this thing of you know looking into the foods and discovering how these things were really hurting her children. And she started this national campaign. It's very interesting. We'll put it in the show notes. But um you all could you all could write a similar book. I know because you've had that as experience and you've and you've incorporated the, this whole solution into your lives. But jumping back to the weeds this year, I have a, a kind of a new bed. Like I had, I increased a bed along the fence. It was only about like 18 inches deep, but I, I about doubled it. So it had all this, this space where, you know, weeds could come up if I didn't do anything with them. And it was such a cold spring and things were slow to come up that I really never got around to figuring out what was going to go there. 
but these big green leaves started coming up and they kept spreading really horizontally across the whole thing. And now they make this beautiful carpet. And I was like, what is that stuff? And um, so I used my little the plant identifier on my phone, which is really quite handy. And it was garlic mustard, which I know garlic mustard. I like garlic mustard. I eat it, but I didn't recognize it because when it's out in the sunshine, it's really tall and has flowers on it. But this garlic mustard was staying low to the ground and more parallel, almost like big lily pads over the, the dirt. And it, it's so beautiful. And it's also like instant salad. Do you, do you all enjoy garlic mustard? Uh, yeah, we, I mean, we have garlic mustard in our, so behind our house, there's a, a little area that's wooded. So there's a lot of garlic mustard that grows up there. I just chop it up and saute it with rice or stir fry when, uh, or put it in the soups. I have a whole uh, crop of it. <laughs> it's funny. By, by accident, by sheer accident, like, like Mother Nature <laughs> just put it there to cover up the bare earth that I'd unearthed last spring. But before we go, I want you guys to tell the story of your experience with your homeowners association. That's such a great story. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's, it's such an a ongoing. It's always painful when, when we get that letter every year, we get a letter and we thought we wouldn't get it this year because um, last year. So the homeowners association is run by a board and they have a third party a company that sends out the notices and that you that people can call to to uh com say that <laughs> that we're not um you know whether or not we're in compliance and they had switched over managers that third party um the person in charge of our prop of our our village is now is different and last year he told us that we just needed to get rid of the vines that were on our yeah, on our front. It was actually grapevines, but he he said ivy. So we're like, yes, yes. <laughs> no, we didn't say yes, yes. We just we, we just said, said okay, we will get rid of them. But um, he because we are technically the year before they sent us a letter saying that we couldn't plant anything in there because there uh, we shouldn't have any vegetables in the front. It's one of these bureaucratic letters where you where you say to yourself, you obviously don't have a clue about what grows in a in a garden at all because yeah. they'd say something like you can grow things as long as they're not vegetables so oh, we said what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and my neighbor we we live in a very like diverse community two, do two doors down to the left um is a bangladeshi lady and she does not speak any english and she doesn't care at all so, <laughs> <laughs> so she gets the same letter and my my daughter is class was classmates with her granddaughter and she said mom do you know what um fazana said to her grandmother she she translated the english the letter from the hoa and said you cannot grow vegetables so grand grandma you can you can your tomatoes are okay cuz they're fruits <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome that that is so classic. Now, I would think that in light of this COVID situation, they would be asking you all to teach everyone to do it. And if they're not, someone needs to go over there and sit them down and say, you guys, wake up. <laughs> I mean, I think the hard thing is, even though we kind of assume that everybody's at the same level of awareness, is, or at least starting to go in that direction, the reality is that most of the the 
the people in our society are still in this mindset where they they aren't aware of it, it's kind of like there's this truth that's protected by a veiled curtain and all they need to do is pull back the curtain and see the truth and they just mm-hmm. are not I, I don't feel bad for I feel bad for them that they're that they don't get to experience it but we were there uh six seven maybe eight years ago so I don't I can identify with where they are so that's kind of like our mission is to to spread the word at a, a grassroots level because it's never going to come from the top the, the government or whatever is never going to really be on maybe eventually if they ever get on board it's because the grassroots movement to educate people about this has already has already educated everybody well and not to sound too conspiracy theorist but there's a lot of people not a lot of people there's a very few people making a lot of money off of people's um not knowing the industrial food industry at large um doesn't want us to know that we can be a little bit more self-reliant so yeah i totally agree yeah, self-sufficiency is very um, threatening to a lot of our systems. And um, yeah, it's, but I, I think the more we're educated and the more we experience things like we have been in the last um, three months where people are really starting to think about, oh my goodness, will we be able to get enough food? Uh, and they start thinking of alternatives, always in a, you know, a situation that where the, the current paradigm is not working that people seek other solutions so I I think that's where we are and that's the silver lining in something like this so and and you guys certainly emerge as shining examples and leaders and mentors as hopefully more and more people move in this direction if you guys haven't said it already which you have at various points I think uh, throughout this conversation what is it that you most want people to understand about the work that you do well, thank you very much for asking that question, and thank you for all your beautiful questions. Really, and this conversation has been so as equally enlightening for us and encouraging for us. I hope as it has for you. Um, but we would like guess that growing our food, medicine, leads to freedom and abundance, and ultimately, it leads to a deeper understanding of our place in the created world and acknowledgement of our creator. Okay, everyone is everyone listening is obsessed with you now. So, <laughs> where can they find you and learn from you, and how can they how can they uh, be a part of what you're doing? So, our website is uh, growmyownfood.com, and what we uh, we're kind of overhauling the website, but um, we we want that to be an informational resource. So, there's lots of blogs and. Uh, we're going to have more tools and things, but we also do a lot of uh, webinars. So we'll have kind of like, have like a webinar a month on some topic. Like last month we did composting, and uh, this month we're doing bees, honeybees. So uh, these are educational webinars that are free. So we we do a lot of kind of like just, and we learn during during these webinars too. We get a lot of guests and and things on these webinars. And then, and we have our flagship program called Grow It Yourself, where if you need a garden mentor and would like to grow your own food in your own backyard, we take you from seed starting, designing, 
all the way to harvest. And it's fun because every month we check in with your progress and we have forums that are not Facebook <laughs> that you can, where you can always troubleshoot your garden problems there as well as an upcoming designer app that Dave is working on. It's going to wow. yeah, it's a garden designer app, but one for permaculture. So it's going to be hopefully released commercially in August, but internally with if you're in our program uh, this month. So wow, we, that's amazing. Yeah, the the whole point of this program was to develop a to try to grow a community of people online who are also from. So we have people from all over the country which is also, we kind of live vicariously through them. We just have this small space to grow. But then we have people from like Arizona that have a completely different climate that they're growing in. So we we, we get all this experience from them. Uh, we do video chats, like Zoom calls with them where we consult with them. And then, um, yeah, we even, when we get cool plant materials, like uh, I took cuttings of my elderberries and figs and gumi berries and we send them all a lot of the free seeds and free plant materials yeah the, the course is gamified too because we actually started out with a different product called the garden game where we were trying we had a garden gnome and then you would go to this next level because dave is in, <laughs> <laughs> he's a techie right but um this one is gamified in the sense that if you progress as you progress through the course you're rewarded by gumi berry cuttings or elderberry cuttings or fig cuttings that you can plant in your so we mail them to you or seeds or you get we do garlic garlic, garlic uh, or seed potatoes or you know what, what we're trying to do is to motivate people so they're they're going through the course they're growing things from seed but we're also giving them these extra things that they oh did, did you know how easy it is to grow garlic if you just put bulbs in in the fall and forget about it for six or seven months and you get garlic in the spring. So we're just trying, you know, all these little things to kind of help them uh, uh, integrate it into their lives. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm sold. I'm, I'm going to sign up. I want to sign up for your design course, Dave. I have, I have a huge garden here that, um, and I'm a, I'm a permaculture um, enthusiast, but I, I, you know, I need to, focus in more and, and get it more, uh, organized. So I'm going to sign up for your design course. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to probably do a beta test during the summer. Uh, and then we'll probably release it in, uh, in August kind of time frame. So what Dave is working on is actually the design app. So it's the, it's an app on your phone or your, is it a phone or your laptop? Well, it's going to be a web website that you can, You'll log you put in your too. designs on, but we do have a design course that's separate with that from that. But it's inside the the Grow It Yourself program, so it's one of those modules in design. We start everybody out in this thing that we call the core course, where we go for where we're targeting people. The idea is uh, like a single season in a raised bed or a set of containers. Uh, so we take them all the way from seed starting, uh, choosing what you're going to grow and how do you transplant your seedlings outside um, all the way through maintaining those and getting a harvest. So we feel like even if you're an experienced gardener, it's good to just start from that basic core. And then we go into uh, more detail and master classes after that. 
Yeah, but the core the core course is short. It's about eight hours to total. So it's it's three ninety nine for the course um, for to be part of the Grow It Yourself program, which includes the app and the community and the the course the course and all the free stuff we send you the Zoom calls, um, and then it you can all there's also a payment plan of thirty nine a month for a year, but there's like little incentives along the way that we <laughs> seasonal campaigns and such. And if you, um, I think we'd just like to invite anybody who has a small space to start with watching our growing, grow, growing food in small spaces webinar. And that will set you up. Like even just watching that and that's free. And even just watching that, you can take a lot from that, those ideas there and then plug them in and see if, the grow it yourself program is is um what you want and we hope it is because we love working with families i'll link to that webinar directly too in the show notes as well yes this sounds so exciting um well thank you all so much for joining us today this has been so great i can go on and on oh thank you it's been such a delightful interview Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. I sure learned a lot and I might be finally trying to attempt my um, my back stoop railing garden <laughs> after talking to them, which I've been putting off for a while. Yes, we hope many of you are inspired to get out there and, and do what you can to grow your own food, even in the smallest way. It opens a door that I think you'll find very fun and rewarding and healing for yourself and the planet and it's just a wonderful thing to do so coming up we'll have some more online classes we're really excited to sort of be exploring that format more it's a great way to come together as a community and to share some information so if there's anything in particular that you would love to learn from mary or from lady farmer uh, please feel free to reach out email us um, at info at ladyfarmer.com or you can reach out to us on Instagram. We want to hear from you. And also to that note, we'll also leave a plug for Nikki and Dave, who you just listened to. They have tons of amazing um, permaculture and grow your own food resources on their website, as you heard them discuss, but make sure that you check that out. And also at the, the show notes at the bottom of this episode, I've linked some of them. Yes, and I wanted to also say that if you were unable to attend our basic fermentation class yesterday, don't worry. The recipe that we made yesterday is in the book, The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. So if you haven't picked up your copy yet, um, feel free to do so. It's on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate or leave a review or even better, share with a friend. If you aren't already, make sure you're following us at We Are Lady Farmer on Instagram. You can find us online at ladyfarmer.com. And if you want to reach the podcast directly with any uh, episode interview suggestions or thoughts or feedback, feel free at thegooddirtpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.